Welcome to Purdue Commercial AgCast, the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm your host, Jim Minter, Director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture. And joining me today is Michael Langemeyer, Professor of Ag Economics here at Purdue. We're gonna review the results from the March Purdue University CME Group Ag Economy Barometer Survey of farmers from across the nation. Each month, we survey 400 farmers across the US to learn more about their perspective on the ag economy. This month's Ag Barometer Survey was conducted from the 22nd through the 26th of March this month. So, so the ag economy barometer did go up a bit, Michael. It was kind of interesting. We rose about 12 points, rose to a reading of 177, up from 165. That still leaves us a little bit below where we were in October, but not very much. I think in October, we were at about 183. So we're about six points below October's reading but it's the highest reading we've had since October. Um, and as you look at it underneath, um, all of that increase was really driven by an improvement in the index of future expectations. That index of future expectations rose from 148 to 164. Um, the index of current conditions did go up, but it was such a small increase, just two points compared to last month to a rating of 202. That does match the index of current conditions all time high, which was set back in December, but still a very small month to month change. So the driver here was the index of future expectations. What do you make of that? What, what, what do you think was the driver there, Michael? Well, I think one of the things that's going on, and we, we know that quite a few of the people responding to the survey produce corn and soybeans. And I think the continue, continued presence of, of very low stocks to use uh, has improved the price prospects, not only for this year, but even if you go into next year, it, it, it looks better than we thought it was going to be certainly several months ago. And so I, I, certainly, I, I certainly think uh, that's part of it. Uh, having said that, you know, the, the uh, index of, of future expectations at 164 is still uh, quite a bit below uh, the, the 186 index last October. And so, and so we're still trailing, uh, you know, trailing quite a bit uh, what, the, what the index was last October, October but certainly it's up quite, uh, rather substantially uh, from January and February. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. I think the driver has been this improved perspective on the outlook and the idea that it's not going to just be a short-term one-time bump, but rather that uh, even with relatively large crops in 2021, we're going to still see some pretty strong prices. I think uh, maybe a little bit of optimism about where the U.S. economy is headed might be a factor here as well. And of course, that would bode well for corn demand with respect to ethanol uh, if we see a, an improvement in recovery in the U.S. economy. And then, of course, uh, uh, during the time frame this report was released, we got a pretty bullish uh, hog and pig report, which made things look a little better for the livestock sector in terms of profitability. So I think all those things came together. But I think your point is well taken, the fact that we remain below the October reading, and that still means people underneath it uh, still have some concerns with respect to some of the policy issues we, we've identified in, you know, over the last several months. Um, people are pretty optimistic about making capital investments. The Farm Capital Investment Index came in at a reading of 88. That's unchanged from last month. And it's really just five points below its all-time high. The all-time high for that index is 93, which I think we set back in December and January. So uh, still pretty optimistic there. When we ask people more specifically about their plans for farm machinery purchases, we saw a small improvement here this month. I think the percentage of people that said they plan to increase their pharmaceutical purchases rose to 11% compared to 9% a month ago. Uh, and that improvement came about because fewer people said they were gonna hold their machinery purchases constant. I think that dropped from 55% last month to 53% this month. 
And, you know, from a kind of a longer term perspective, these are really some of the best readings we've gotten since we've been collecting data with respect to people's willingness and interest in making investments in their farming operations. What do you make of that, Michael? Yeah, I, I think I think this index would actually be higher if there was not quite a bit of uncertainty related to where prices might be in the fall. Uh, if, if, if prices remain strong uh, you know, through the summer and into the fall, particularly for corn and soybeans again, but also for wheat, uh, and, and some other commodities also, I think we're going to see that I think we're going to see this strengthen quite a bit uh, from its current levels. And so and so I, I kind of point to the, the fact why this is not stronger, given that 2020 was a good income year and 21 looks like it's going to be a good income year is just related to the uncertainty of where prices might end up. Uncertainty with respect to prices. And I think the other thing that I've sort of picked up as a, as a backstory, but it hasn't really shown up explicitly on our surveys. And that is the uh, inventories are relatively tight. So if you want to make a purchase, um, you probably got to wait in line a little bit. Uh, the inventories uh, available at dealers are probably, at least on some of the principal items, are, are sort of tight. And that's probably making uh, maybe some people holding back a little bit because of that. We don't have any strong evidence of that, but certainly here's some talk to that effect. Um, people are really optimistic about farmland values, and I think that's being uh, backed up by some of the evidence we're hearing from auctioneers. The short-term farmland value index uh, was up three points compared to a month earlier, I think at 148 versus 145. And if uh, our listeners are happen to look at the actual chart for this in the report or on the website, um, you know, it's it really looks... Uh, pretty strong if you compare the results going back to last April. Uh, that index was, uh, I'm trying to think here, I can't quite read the number on my chart, Michael, but uh, we were about, what, 69 or 70 on the index, I think, back in April, and now we're at 148. So, I mean, it's been a meteoric rise in that short-term farmland index. Uh, yeah, and this index has really increased the last three or four months. I, you know, it, it's pretty much followed uh, the, where prices have went, particularly again going back to corn and soybeans again. But it's pretty much followed prices as those prices have improved uh, and price prospects have improved. Uh, this index has went up, and and I think it's important to note that very few people thought that farmland values were actually going to decline uh, in, in 2020. I would certainly be in the camp uh, that think they're going to increase. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's, it's the most positive reading we've ever gotten, and it, it just keeps going up, and it's, uh, it's being backed up by the stories we're hearing from the auctioneers with respect to the strength they're seeing at, at farmland sales. The other point some of the auctioneers have made is not only is demand strong, the supply of farmland being auctioned and available for sale is actually pretty small. It's pretty tight. So it's really kind of two things really supporting what's taking place with respect to farmland prices. Um, we also asked people about their longer-term expectations, the five-year-ahead uh, question on the survey, and we used that to compute the long-term farmland value expectations index. Uh, that index matched its all-time high at 157. That's four points higher than it was a month earlier. And, uh, you know, our previous all-time high in that index was back in December. So um, if you look at the chart, it's, it's similar, not identical to what we see in the short-term chart. The short-term chart has, has more of a meteoric rise to it, but these are the strongest responses we've gotten to farmland values, uh, going back to the very beginning of when we started collecting data uh, on this survey. So really interesting with respect to the optimism, both short-term and long-term. And I think this one was very correlated with the index of future expectations. And the fact that we've seen some strength recently in the index of future expectations, I think is also reflected uh, in this long-term farmland value expectations index. 
if the future looks a little brighter, uh, they're going to think uh, land values five years out, up to five years out, uh, is also are, are also going to be stronger. Um, we computed a new index this month. It's based on a question we've been asking periodically going back to 2018. We've been asking people about their farms, expectations for their farms, financial performance uh, in the upcoming year compared to a year earlier. And we're using that to compute what we call the farm financial performance index. Um, Unfortunately, we didn't compute, ask this question every month since we started the survey, but we did. We have asked it uh, periodically going back to April of 2018. That index rose to its highest reading since we've been posing the question, uh, a reading of 125. That was up four points compared to February. And it's really interesting to compare the values on that index compared to what people were telling us last summer. You know, last summer, this index was down in the 70 to 69 point range. If you go back to last April, it was at 55. So uh, people are much, much more optimistic and confident of their farm's financial performance. And I think that's feeding right back into that capital investment index. That's feeding right back into that farmland, those two farmland value indices that we were talking about. Don't you agree, Michael? Yeah, one of the things that I took a look at here is the difference between uh, this March and last March. Now, we know last March was the start of the pandemic, and so uh, it, things were starting to head south a little bit uh, in last March. But I think it's just really interesting that uh, if you look at the percentage uh, that think they're, they're better off uh, today compared to a year ago, that was just 10% last March. And so a lot of pessimism with regard to financial situation last March. That's increased to 35% uh, this March. And so, and so just a huge increase, like you were indicating, uh, in, in, uh, in, in their, and what they think their prospects are for financial performance this year. Yeah, I think that really feeds into those other indices. When people are confident of their farm's financial performance, that's when they're more likely to be willing to make investments in their farming operations. So that capital investment index, as well as the farmland index uh, with respect to what they think is gonna happen to those asset values, namely farmland. So. Uh, so the one part of the report that uh, isn't showing more optimism is when we ask people about their perspective on what's going on with trade with China. So one of the questions we've been asking going back to, uh, I guess, the beginning of 2020 is, do you think the trade dispute with China will ultimately be resolved in a way that benefits U.S. agriculture? And in early 2020, 80% of the people in the survey said that they thought that this would be resolved in a way that was beneficial to U.S. agriculture. Keep in mind that was about the time uh, the phase one trade agreement was signed and that really did generate some optimism. We lost optimism as we kind of progressed through 2020. Uh, I think by June that was down to 65% said that they thought it would be resolved in a way it was beneficial. Um, through the fall, that, that percentage kept going down. In November, it was 50%, December 47, January 38, February 37%, and now in the March survey, 31%. I have to say, given the strength we've seen with respect to US exports to China, especially the, the, the principal commodities, uh, corn, soybeans, and, and, and pork, um, I'm a little surprised. I mean, I, I, this has been going on long enough now, I can't say I'm, I'm totally surprised, but it, it is a little interesting that that percentage keeps going down despite the fact that China has been a large buyer of U.S. ag products in recent months. Yeah, this is a bit of a head scratcher uh, to say the least. And I still think what's going on here is there's just a, some uncertainty uh, with a new administration, how we're gonna deal with trade with China. Uh, and until some of that uncertainty gets resolved, uh, people are not gonna be as optimistic uh, regarding questions like this. 
Well, that's a good point. And, and maybe to turn this around, it, it, we would have to see an actual uh, formal agreement uh, take place. Um, so, you know, we, we saw weaker responses when we asked people about the likelihood that China was going to um, uh, complete or, or satisfy the requirements of the phase one trade agreement. So people are they're cognizant of, um, I think, the importance of trade with China, but they're maybe concerned and or skeptical about what it's going to mean in the long run. So that's kind of an interesting question and something we're going to continue to pursue. So um, uh, a topic area that we've been pursuing this winter, um, been a lot of interest uh, across the board in, in agriculture about carbon sequestration and, and the likelihood or availability of, of people uh, signing contracts to sequester carbon on their farming operation. So we've been asking a series of questions uh, going back to January and just kind of summarize those results so far. Um, if you look at our surveys, January, February, March, between 30 and 40% of the people in our surveys say that they are aware of at least some opportunities to potentially receive carbon sequestration payments. And then when we follow up, um, <clears throat> a pretty small percentage have actually engaged in a discussion with the companies about payments. I think on this March survey, it was about 7% 7 7 of the people in the survey said they've actually engaged in a discussion with a company about payments. And then we, uh, we followed up and said, well, if you've, if, this is specifically now targeting the people that said they had had some discussions. Um, we asked them, what kind of payment rates were you discussing with those companies? And 80% uh, of that 7% said that the payment rates that they were offered and were discussing were $20 an acre or less. And then if you dig down a little farther, and now at this point, the numbers of people responding gets pretty small, so we don't have a tremendous amount of confidence here. But of the people that responded, um, that 80% or so, that was pretty evenly divided between people that said they were offered rates of less than uh, $10 an acre um, and people that said they were offered a rate of 10 to less than $20 an acre. Um, and then finally, the last question we asked was, um, you know, have you actually signed a carbon sequestration contract? And just 1% of the people in the March survey said that they have actually signed a contract. So, so interesting topic area, Michael, a small number of people uh, responding with respect to talking about uh, payment rates, uh, what those payment rates are and actually having signed a contract. What, what do you make of all this? Well, one of the things that I found very interesting when we asked that we asked the questions this month is we asked the people that, did not, that had been engaged but have not signed a contract why they had not signed a contract or why they, why they didn't uh, move forward with that. Uh, and there was a lot of different reasons, but one of the things that really stuck out to me, and again, this was a relatively small group uh, because there was a relatively small group that was actively engaged, but the, the, group, uh, the, the group that did not sign contracts did not think the payment rates were high enough. Uh, and so that, that was one thing that clearly was clearly indicated in this month's survey. Yeah, it was given the caveat that it's a small number of people, but that's, yes. yeah, it was, uh, it's kind of interesting. So, you know, there's been a tremendous amount of discussion in the farm press and elsewhere this winter about carbon sequestration and, and uh, agriculture's uh, opportunity here. Um, I think a couple of things really jump out as one is the very few people have signed a contract. That's that our surveys would support that idea. And then the, I think the second point that, that you're making is there's probably not going to be too much interest unless these rates go up. Um, and so that's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out over time. 
Um, I know a couple of our faculty are, are working with us on this, uh, and Nathan Thompson and, and Carson Reeling have been working with us on some of these questions. And I know they've got some additional work going on in this area. So it's going to be interesting to hear a little bit more about what they've got to say on this topic later as they continue to do some research on this area. So it's an area we're going to continue to ask questions about. Uh, it's an area that's obviously of an interest to a lot of people. So we're going to continue to try and gather information on this topic area. Well, Michael, that kind of wraps up our discussion for the March Ag Economy Barometer. For more details, you can go to our website, purdue.edu slash agbarometer. Um, we've got our next corn and soybean outlook webinar coming up very soon. I think just next Monday, Monday, April 12th. That'll be at 3.30 p.m. Uh, Eastern Daylight Time. And uh, that's going to be follow the release of USDA's World Ag Supply Demand Estimates, which comes out on Friday uh, of this week. So we'll uh, kind of digest that over the weekend and then talk about it Monday afternoon. You can register for that webinar at purdue.edu slash commercial ag and get a few more details about it. And so with that, uh, I encourage you to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. And on behalf of Michael Langmer and the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm Jim Mintert. Thanks for listening.